0: John chapter 9. This 21 chapter gospel is given to us with a very stated purpose in verse 31 of chapter 20 that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, identifying himself by his location and his first name, Jesus being the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the Son of God, that he did did not arrive here by ordinary generation, but by supernatural generation in the womb of a virgin, as explained in Luke chapter 1. For those interested, and just a side point, there's a book over here on the table that you're welcome to look at. It's a reprint from the late 1700s and early 1800s by the Scottish Baptist preacher Archibald MacLean, who held our position in the Sonship of Jesus Christ and defended it so beautifully. I'm having great pleasure... Grabbing that book a couple times a day over the last week or so, and reading some of his statements. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God this morning? Amen. Amen. That's the evidence of eternal life. To truly believe it and let it change your life. Choose to have it change your life. John chapter 9. The entire chapter is dedicated to Jesus healing, Jesus converting, and Jesus defending. A man born blind. This chapter will expose the wicked bias and stubborn ignorance of religious leaders defending a party line. It exposes the fear of men to resist religious rulers due to implied or threatened consequences. It shows the boldness of the few willing to stand on certain evidence rather than prejudice. It shows sound reasoning for the Lord Jesus Christ and irrational opposition to Jesus Christ as the Son of God. This chapter shouldn't be read any differently than any other chapter in John. It's to show us the Savior that we might believe on him, and that believing on him as the Christ of Israel and the Son of God, and that believing he might have life through his name. Right. The chapter has seven scenes, as I'm calling them. If you want to have an outline for John 9, verses 1 through 7 is the first scene Jesus finds and heals the man born blind. Verses 8 through 12. The man has an exchange with his neighbors and acquaintances. Verses 13 through 17, the first examination by the Pharisees of this man. Then those Pharisees examine his parents in verses 18 through 23. Then in verses 24 through 34, the man's second examination by the Pharisees. Jesus finds the man in verses 35 through 38. Jesus condemns the Pharisees in verses 39 through 41 as being the truly blind ones in the situation. Verse 1, last Lord's Day, we covered verses 1 through 3. Very quickly in review, verse 1, we noticed four things that were precious to us. Jesus passing by is what we need. And as Jesus passed by, he was in his travels to another destination. But all it takes is for Jesus to pass by. It's enough for him to see us because in this particular case, he saw, and it tells us that. So that's blessing number two in that first verse. He saw. I have shared verses with you on Wednesday evening, last Sunday in updates sent to you by email this week about Jesus seeing different men and women, their hearts, not expressed hearts, seeing it and helping them. I've sent you all kinds of examples Remember the one about Hagar. Hagar was in a terrible predicament. Hagar was an Egyptian bond slave. She was fired. She was pregnant by conspiracy. She was lost. There's a lot of bad things about Hagar. And yet in Genesis chapter 16, we have a chapter about her lost in the wilderness And the Lord came to her by the angel of the Lord and blessed her and gave prophecies about her and her son, Ishmael. And she renamed God in that chapter. Verse 13, thou, God, seest me. We go a few chapters more. And the Lord saw the affliction of Leah, that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. God saw that affliction. He closed up the womb of Rachel. He opened the womb of Leah. Leah gave him six sons. And it says the Lord saw her affliction. Now that affliction is emotional. It was personal. It was intimate. It was marital. The Lord saw it. This is the God we deal with. This is the Lord Jehovah. He is not watching from a distance. We are not deists that he has wound this universe up like a clock and is sitting back somewhere and letting it run. He is involved in our lives. Right. And there's so many more examples. You go a couple more chapters, and God saw Jacob in his affliction because he had a hard father-in-law. and that father-in-law was also his employer, and had changed his wages 10 times over 20-year time period, gave him the wrong daughter for when he married he was trying to marry Rachel, and he woke up in the morning with Leah in bed with him. I mean, the man gave him trouble throughout was a hard man, but the Lord saw his affliction. And when Jacob left, Laban didn't have much left. When Jacob left, Jacob was a rich man. He couldn't move in one group. He had to separate himself because there was so much the Lord had blessed him with. Hadn't always been that way. And that's why you need the character of Jacob to get the blessings of Jacob. But those that put their trust in the Lord, his eyes are open unto them. Those whose hearts are perfect before him, it says the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on their behalf. And here it is, he saw. I love those two words. He saw. The Lord Jesus Christ sees everything. He sees every affliction and pain of our hearts. He sees the thoughts and intents of our hearts. Hebrews 4.12. And... He saw a man. It doesn't need to be a church. It doesn't need to be a great multitude. He sees us as individuals. And every man, woman, and child should embrace that fact. He sees you. He knows you. He will help you. Which was blind from his birth. Now that's a difficult predicament. That's not some small matter like you need to sell a house. Or you need to find a car to buy. Or you need to find a spouse. This is a man born blind. This is serious. How do you cure this? This is impossible. Not for the Lord. And so we have John 9, 1. Thank you, Heavenly Father. John John 9, 2, his disciples asked the foolish question, Master, who did sin? This man or his parents that he was born blind. Why didn't the disciples ask Jesus to heal the man born blind instead of worrying about why was he born blind? Wouldn't that have been better? Uh Uh-huh, check your own pride. We just heard a long description of pride and a good description of pride, and that is to look at the infirmities of others and to think that there must be sin in their lives. Three men did that to Job. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They were wrong. They shouldn't have done that. There wasn't sin in Job's life. There wasn't secret hypocrisy in Job's life. Shouldn't have done that. Lord, help us to do better than that. Verse 3, this man was born blind for the glory of God. And Jesus explains that in the last half of the verse. He told his disciples, neither hath this man sinned nor his parents. And it's elliptically understood that he was born blind because they did sin. The man born blind did sin and his parents did sin. But the context, wasn't that the lesson from Wednesday evening? Our slide lesson on how to understand the Bible is the smaller context. And that context tells us that the first half of verse 3 is to be understood in light of verse 2. That when he said, neither hath this man sinned, he didn't mean that in absolute terms, though the words are not in verse 3. He did not mean that in absolute terms, but in relative terms, that he was born blind. This blindness is not because of his own sins. This blindness is not because of his parents' sins. This blindness is that the works of God might be made manifest, that God might show his power through me by healing him from his blindness. On that third verse, we looked more closely at why bad things happen to Christians. Why do bad events happen to Christians? You read through the Bible, David had so many bad events in his life. Jacob, when he finally met Pharaoh, oh, Jacob's little expression about his life is pitiful about how terrible of a life he had had. And you see Joseph's troubles down in Egypt. And you see Naomi's troubles and Ruth's troubles. And you wonder, why do all these bad things happen to Christians? We went through four reasons for that. Number one is the greater glory of God that we have introduced to us in John 9, 3. That was true of Lazarus. Lazarus was sick and he died from it, though Jesus said this sickness is not unto death but that the glory of God might be manifested in his life. Right. Jesus was able to raise Lazarus from the dead for his glory, for God's glory. And so some things happen for the glory of God. The Apostle Paul was, had a thorn in the flesh and it was for the glory of God because through our weakness, we are better able to show the glory of God than through our strength or prosperity. When we are weak, And we rejoice in a situation. We're showing the strength of God through us. When I am weak, then am I strong. And the apostle Paul said, once I understood this about the thorn in my flesh, I stopped praying for it to be taken away. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities. Timothy? Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities. That was Paul's thorn in the flesh. You have a thorn in your flesh. You have a little needle, dripping insulin. You have a thorn in the flesh. And Paul learned to glory in it. And you stay cheerful like you have been for many years. With your diabetes, okay? That may have been what Paul had. We don't know what Paul had. Lord, help us. Number two reason. First one is the greater glory of God. God will do things in our lives. Look at Fanny Crosby. Remember Wednesday night? She was found blind at six weeks of age. She lived to be 85. She wrote 8,000 hymns and songs. 8,000. They are some of our favorite hymns and songs. They love the Lord Jesus Christ. They love the rapturous delight of her Savior. She said, if I were to be offered perfect sight, I would reject it because if I had had sight... I would not have done so much for the praise of my Savior because I would have been distracted by the things around me. Right. For the greater glory of God. She said, my vision will be open for the first time and the first face that will forever be in my memory will be the Lord Jesus Christ right. when she sees him face to face. As a side note, let me repeat that I've given to you twice now. This is the third time that girl memorized five chapters of the Bible every week of her life between the age of 10 and 15. Five per week is 260 a year. She was full of matter, wasn't she? Amen. She had a great memory and she wrote so many for the glory of God. The second reason is the trial of your faith. God sends us trials and tribulations to perfect us because You are more perfected through adversity than you are through prosperity. Adversity teaches you to rely on God and gives you experience, and experience gives you hope, and all of it together is called patience, which is cheerfully enduring negative events. Patience is not waiting forever. That may be a definition, but not in the Bible. Patience in the Bible is cheerfully enduring negative events, and to learn to do that, you're perfect, because it's the hardest thing to learn. It's James 1, 2 through 4. My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into divers temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. When you learn to cheerfully endure negative events, you're perfect and entire. You're a complete Christian and you're, you're lacking nothing. That's James 1, 2 through 4. It's the word of God. We believe it. We need to embrace it and practice it. So the trial of your faith. The third reason that bad things happen is the chastening of our sins. And the chastening of our sins is a good thing. It's the proof that God loves us. It's the proof that fathers love their children when their fathers chasten those children. Chastening, scourging, severe, discipline is real love. Not doing it is hatred, no matter what the person says. The vain words that come out of a parent's mouth that do not believe in severe and strict chastening is hatred. The Bible declares it repeatedly. If you truly love your child, you will chasten them and punish them, even scourging is the word and verb used in Hebrews chapter 12, in order to perfect them and make them better so they won't have to endure The painful life of a person that hasn't learned self-discipline. So the Lord does that. And And in faithfulness, he afflicts us. The Jews were taken to Babylon for 70 years because they hadn't kept their Sabbath day like they should have. They neglected the Sabbath day. God put them in Babylon for 70 years so that for 70 years, that land observed her Sabbaths, is the way that the prophet Jeremiah put it. So it's the chastening of sin, and it's a good thing. It gets us back out of the way of foolishness and sin and back into the right way of serving the Lord. The fourth reason that bad things happen is the consequences of foolishness. The natural consequences of foolishness. It's not for the greater glory of God, except for this caveat. All of these are for the greater glory of God. This is because you did something foolish and there are consequences to foolishness. If you don't get a transferable skill, you're going to be underemployed for the rest of your life and not be able to make enough to live comfortably and to help out where you should and could because you didn't get a transferable skill. You played basketball or video games in school, and you didn't want to put forth the effort to get a transferable skill. You marry the wrong person. You marry a person that doesn't fear the Lord, you're going to have a troubled marriage the rest of your life. That's the natural consequences of foolishness. The Bible talks about a whole lot of them. If you don't save money, you won't have any stored up capital for a business investment. You won't have any stored up capital for a rainy day when you're going to need help. And so on and on, the Bible tells us many of these things. they are natural consequences to foolishness. That's why bad things happen to Christians. The glory of God, the trial of our faith, the chastening of sins, and the natural consequences of foolishness. Verse 4, here we go. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay, and said unto him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. He went his way, therefore, and washed and came seeing amen. amen verse 4 i must work the works of him that sent me god had sent the lord jesus christ into this world with specific works for jesus to do for him let's keep these words in their context the planned healing of this blind man and that he was going to heal this blind man on the sabbath day the works that God sent Jesus to do from greater to lesser, were to die, were to preach, and were to perform miracles. And he did those things. Jesus had sent such a message to John about his activities. Over in Luke chapter 7, when John sent from prison to ask about the Lord Jesus Christ, here's the answer. He got back when John asked, "'Art thou the one that, we sh- that should come, or do we look for another?' Luke chapter 7, verse 21, And in that same hour he cured many of their infirmities and plagues, and of evil spirits, and unto many that were blind he gave sight. Then Jesus answering said unto them, Go your way and tell John what things ye have seen and heard, how that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, to the poor the gospel is preached. And blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. These are the works of the Lord Jesus Christ. He preached the gospel to the poor, he performed miracles, then he gave his life on the cross of Calvary. I must work the works of him that sent me. Our Savior was not a lazy, good for nothing Hindu guru, our Savior was a mighty man of valor, and he was about his business continually. His travels back and forth the 80 miles from Nazareth and Galilee and Capernaum to Jerusalem occurred many times by foot. And he had a ministry and a work to do. More occurred than just a healing on this particular day in John chapter 9. Jesus was exalted and a man converted. And the gospel defended and the Pharisees rebuked. Before we get done with these 41 verses. Jesus could only work while it was day while he had his short time to work. There's a metaphor in this verse. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. That's a metaphorical expression for the fact that I have a limited time to work, as they did then before the advent of electricity, in which we have these three shifts or two shifts that occupy factories day and night, or hospitals day and night. That was a, that's a change in our lives, that we, so that we need to think about this particular passage. Men only work during the daylight. You only had daylight to get something done. Just a hundred years ago or so, before there were electric lights or electric lights to be taken to a field, if you were harvesting, you got up at the first crack of dawn when you could see what needed to be done, you were working, and you worked until dusk finally shut you down. But you worked while the sun was shining. Man could not work after dark, so they worked fast and hard during the daylight time. By the way, the latitude of Jerusalem and Judea is Greenville, South Carolina. Just for your information, when you're thinking about I wonder what kind of seasons Israel had. Well, they had the kind of seasons you have. You say, I wonder how long their days were. Well, they're the length of our days. And so you worked while you had Daylight. Jesus had a very short ministry of three and a half years, and he was constantly working. This is your Lord and Savior, working with great zeal for the glory of God. Amen. I must work. How many of you have that same commitment? I must work. I must work. We should have that commitment. Jesus gives us a great example here in this fourth verse of John 9. I love these first five verses. You know, verse 1 tells us that he saw the man born blind. But it's not until verse 6 that we get his healing. And and 7. Because in those verses, 2 through 4, we have a lot of philosophy given to us, a lot to help us with our worldview of how and why things happen. And this is describing our Lord Jesus Christ's character before he actually heals the man. He's explaining things to his apostles, and we get the benefit of one of those eyewitnesses writing it down for us. And I love a zealous man, and I love a diligent man. Solomon wrote in the book of Proverbs, seest thou a man diligent in his business? He shall stand before kings. He shall not stand before mean men. That's average men. The mean of something is it's average. He shall not stand before mean men. He's going to stand before kings. Where is the Lord Jesus Christ at this hour? He is seated at the right hand of Almighty God. And it's the zeal of the Lord of hosts that made the Lord Jesus Christ great, according to Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. That is setting up the kingdom of Jesus Christ and Jesus as the Prince of Peace of that kingdom. I love these words. We want to love every word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. We don't want to race over verse 4 to get to verses 6 and 7 to get to spit mud and how it helps blind men see. Listen, if you make mud and shove it in a seeing person's eyes, you'll make them blind. But the Lord Jesus Christ can put mud in in a blind man's eyes and make him see. But we're not there yet. We want this fourth verse. And this is our Lord and Savior. This should help us believe on Him. Because Jesus of Nazareth Did not sit cross legged in the street smoking some hallucinogenic in order to give a vision of some God. He was at work. I must work. Look at his responsibility. We live in a nation of people thinking they're entitled to something for not working. I must work. Everybody can do something. I must work, the Lord Jesus said. I must work the works of him that sent me. Now he was focused. He was focused at the age of 12. When his parents found him in the temple with the doctors and lawyers of the law, he said, I must be about my father's business. I must. I must work the works of him that sent me. I must be about my father's business. That is a young man with a goal for his life and a passion for that goal and who applies himself diligently to it. Every one of you young men, You can be great in the sight of the Lord by following the example of your Savior even in this fourth verse. My brethren, do you understand the shortness of life and its constant deterioration for zeal? Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 10 tells us this. This is how we ought to work. Tomorrow's a work day. Today's a work day. For me. Although I've always told my wife, Sunday's my day off. Ecclesiastes 9:10, "Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. Whatever we find to do, let's do it with our might, let's be like the Lord Jesus Christ, I must work. While it's daytime, I'm going to work. And that daytime is a metaphor of daylight hours to work hard, but it's actually describing his short life of ministry. He only got three and a half years, because the next verse says, "While I am in the earth, while I'm in the world." It's talking about his short life. And he's six months from crucifixion right here. This is the Feast of Tabernacles six months before the Feast of Passover. And so he's working hard. But look at what Solomon told us to do. In Ecclesiastes 9.10, Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. If it's schoolwork tomorrow, girls, do it with your might. If it's driving a truck tomorrow, do it with your might. Within the speed limit close. Do with your might. You see me before this day's over. I heard more about your job. You've got a good job. I appreciated hearing it, even if I had to hear it from a little birdie. Ecclesiastes 9.10. I'm building up the second half of this verse. We all know the first half. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might, for there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave whither thou goest. Well, of course not. Psalm, what in the world did you mean? Of course there's no work in the grave. God himself described it in Isaiah 57 as being able to lie on your bed. We make it pretty nice, too, in that casket. You get to lie on your bed and be at peace and sleep. For those of you that love to sleep, there's a way to get there. (laughs) But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches the opposite. The Bible teaches that because there is no work in a cemetery, you ought to be working now and doing it with your might because that is going to be taken away from you. A job well done is its own reward. A job done with a reward is a double blessing. Working hard is a blessing. It's a privilege. Do with your might. And we have an example. Not Solomon, the Lord Jesus Christ. The one greater than Solomon as Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 6. Back to John chapter 9 and verse 4. I must work the works of him that sent me. My brethren, do you understand the shortness of life? Some are in the late afternoon. Think about yourself right now. Are you in the morning? If you're under the age of 18, you're in the morning. If you're between 18 and 40, you're at high noon. If you're between 40 and 60, you know you're in the afternoon. If you're like me, it's starting to get dusk. And I don't like it. So what do we do about it if we don't like it? If we don't like the thought of not being able to work, whatsoever thy hand find to do, do with thy might like the Lord Jesus Christ. As you get older with more wisdom, you have fewer daily duties, and that allows more work. You could get more things done that you couldn't get done in the past when there were more pressing burdens on you that took more of your time. It's a different way of looking at life. Is it the way that Solomon described in Ecclesiastes 9? Yes. Is it the way that Jesus is describing it here? He wasn't describing being old over 60. He was describing being 33 years old, but knowing he only had six months left. Lord, help us. It has been said that 54% of all great achievements come after the age of 60. David spent the last decade of his life from 60 to 70 with one of his greatest achievements, listen, running to meet Goliath was a bold move, but it wasn't a great achievement. That was God's achievement, and it was so short in duration, but for the last 10 years of his life, from 60 to 70, he gathered with all his might. He practiced what Solomon wrote, to gather for the building of a temple that he wanted to be exceeding magnifical to the glory of God, because he said, this palace is not for men, this is for the Lord. That's David's spirit, and he was doing it till the day of his death. Even though he got very weak at the end, so weak he couldn't even keep his own body heat, so they had to put Abishag in that bed with him in order to keep him warm. American concepts of retirement are more slothful than they are prudent. You find them in the Bible. To sit around and waste your life for the last 20 or 30 or 40 years? No. There's things you can be doing because your duties are different. But, you know, there's waning zeal and strength. Lord, help us. Let us be like the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you as committed and convicted as Jesus was to work the works of God? Paul labored more abundantly than all the other apostles. And he said so in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 10. The grace of God that was bestowed upon him was not in vain. He labored more abundantly than they all. Timothy, as a soldier, was to war a good warfare and endure hardness. 2 Timothy chapter 2, the household of Stephanus conducted themselves like addicts. You say, Pastor, are you sure? Mm-hmm. Is that the word, Pastor? Yep. Yes. The household of Stephanus was addicted to the ministry of the saints. Amen. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, are you as committed as our Lord Jesus Christ? What a Savior! We have. Hallelujah, what a savior. Look at this mighty man of valor that we have in, in John chapter 9 and verse 4. Don't watch those Hollywood flicks that try to turn Jesus of Nazareth into a Hindu guru. That long haired, effeminate, lazy, weak, pitiful looking creature, that's not the Lord Jesus of the Bible. Right, right. The Lord Jesus of the Bible worked for his father, and his father was a carpenter. He grabbed and made a scourge of cords, and drove the money changers and turned their tables over. Can you see the sweat beating up on his forehead and his veins popping in his neck because he had zeal for the house of the Lord? And the apostles watching the Lord Jesus Christ do that, remembered by the blessing of the Spirit, Psalm 69, where the prophecy was made, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Right. That was a, he was a man of zeal. Amen. And yet that man of zeal... When he preached, he could preach all day and pray all night. That man could cleanse the temple of money changers, and yet a bruised reed would he not break, nor the smoking flax quench, because he found blind men like this who had never worked a day in their lives except to hold out a cup, and he saved them. He saved them physically, and he saved them spiritually. Thank you, Lord. The night cometh when no man can work, The metaphor of night was when Jesus Christ would no longer be able to work here on earth. The words are only metaphorical, the nature of day and night and how they relate to work. Night, for Jesus, would be his return to heaven after his earthly ministry. The next verse tells us that if we cheat and look ahead, as long as I am in the world, because he only had six months more in the world. If we should rejoice in manual labor, like Ecclesiastes 9.10 tells us, If we should rejoice in manual labor, how much more should we rejoice in whatever we can do for the Lord Jesus Christ, his word, his people, his church, his truth? How much more? As you get closer to finishing a race, don't you usually put on a burst of greater speed? Or do you ask for a lounge chair? You know, our lives are our race. We're in a stadium. There's a cloud of spectators all around that you can't recognize except you're told about them in Hebrews chapter 11 and in Hebrews chapter 12. Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, we're in a stadium. We're on a track. Some of you are in your first lap of a four-lap mile race. Some are in your second lap. Some are in your third. Charlie and I are in our fourth. And some of you are closer to the finish line than I am. As far as we know, we're supposed to be running our race. It doesn't matter how you ran laps one, two, and three if you're in lap four. All that matters is how we run lap four. If you're in first place after three laps, it doesn't mean anything. You could finish last. And are there men in the Bible that finished last? Solomon was doing pretty well by lap two, wasn't he? Solomon finished last. Lord, help us to run our race and to run it well and to do the works while it is day before the night comes when we can't work, we can't serve you. Let's have a burst of greater speed, my brethren that are aging with me in this church. Verse five, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. As long as I'm in the world, I've already explained that. This Sabbath day in our Lord's life was another opportunity for him to work. He had six months left before his crucifixion and he wanted to serve the Lord and glorify God and reveal himself as the son of God to this nation of Israel. When he left the world for heaven, his ministry could no longer be as personal. He wouldn't be in the world that way. Is Jesus in the world today? Yes. Is Jesus not in the world today? Yes. Jesus physically is at the right hand of God in heaven. Jesus by his spirit is with us today. Because he walks among his seven golden candlesticks by his, how many spirits? Seven spirits. Is there one Holy Spirit or seven Holy Spirits? Yes. One Holy Spirit, but he's representing the Bible as seven because there are seven churches being considered in Revelation 2 and 3 that each need the Spirit of God. I love the Lord. He helps us out. But if there's only one Spirit and there's seven churches of Asia, how are they going to have the Spirit of God and Jesus Christ with each one of them? Because it's called the seven Spirits of God to comfort them. There's actually more than seven churches, but we don't have to deal with church number eight, do we? Because seven's a perfect number in the Bible. The Lord's with us by His Spirit. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them by His Spirit. Thank you, Lord. He's he's in heaven, and He's with us by His Spirit. Do you have the same conviction of Jesus Christ that while you breathe, you should be serving? As long as I am in the world. Let's follow His example. I am the light of the world. Jesus is still the light of the world. He's still the light of the world with the preaching of his gospel and, the, and his word being present in this world and by our lives. Let our light so shine before men that they may see your good works, your good works, and glorify your Father which is in heaven. See, we're little lights, and we've been made little lights by the greater light, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the, what did you read last night in Malachi chapter 4 and verse 2? He is the Son, spelled how? How? S-U-N. He is the son of righteousness. He is the glorious display of God's righteousness and he's made us little lights and we're to show our works. This was for the works of God to be made manifest in a man born blind for Jesus Christ's sake. But for the glory of God, everything he did was his father's works for his glory and everything we do should be for the father's glory. So Matthew five sixteen. let your light, let your light, So shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Lord, help us to do that. Thank you, Lord Jesus. I covered in John chapter 8 and verse 12, Jesus being the light of the world in detail, so I'm not going to retrace that ground. Over there, he said, and I told you it was the most important verse out of 59 verses in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. What a glorious statement of the founder of our religion, our great high priest, the apostle of our profession, the Lord Jesus Christ, the bishop of our souls, and the shepherd of the sheep, the great shepherd, the good shepherd, the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, our Lord Jesus Christ. Healing the blind man's physical sight was merely a token of his greater light. And he would show that man his greater light in the last six verses or so of this chapter. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. I've got to do the works of my Father. My Father is the brilliant light of all. He has sent me to be a light in this world. The works that He sent me to do, I'm going to do, and it includes healing this blind man, and I'm about to do it because I am the light of the world. I've only got six months left. That's what all this means so far. And so we've had a foundation set up for spit mud in the eyes of a blind man and the pool of Siloam. So let's go to verse 6. Oh, the son of righteousness. Do you love him? I can't leave it quite yet, but you can look at verse 6, but listen to verse 5 and listen to Malachi chapter 4. The son of righteousness shall arise with what in his wings? Healing. Healing in his wings. A broken, a bruised reed shall he not break. This man was bruised. He couldn't see from birth, nor the smoking flax would he quench, but he would revive and rekindle and build up and strengthen, and he did. Verse 6, when he had thus spoken, giving us a beautiful foundation for the healing, when he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay and said unto him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. He went his way, therefore, and washed and came, singing, Amen. When he had thus spoken, Jesus did everything purposefully, just as we should, and here he explained things first before he did them. Much valuable matter has been given to us in verses 1 through 5. That's why it's taken us so long to get to verse 6. Consider that contextual help to wisely view the man and the Lord in truth. We've answered some very large philosophical questions. Why are some people born blind? That's huge. Why are some people born blind? Why do bad things happen to people? Is Jesus Christ, the Lord Jehovah in flesh, able to show interest in an individual person? Yes. Does he? Yes. In difficult situations? In impossible situations? To them, because nothing is impossible with the Lord. Amen. It's only to us. Can a camel go through the eye of a needle? Depend who sends the camel. That's a, can a rich man enter into the kingdom of heaven? Jesus answered his, his apostle said, nope, that's impossible. Jesus said, with men all things are, that such things are impossible, but with God all things are possible. Right. And so there were some rich men that entered the kingdom of heaven by repentance for their lives. The rich young ruler didn't do it, but there were others that did, like Joseph of Arimathea. Verse 6, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle. Jesus did not use any medicinal means like we use and ask for God's blessing on such aids. He did it supernaturally by his power. There was absolutely no therapeutic value in spit mud for permanent blindness. Please, do not so believe every word of God that you leave this service today and go find a person born blind and spit, make mud and stick it in their eyes. I will have to come and post bond somewhere for you and it won't accomplish any good. It's amazing what people will do. You say, why would you even make that illustration? Have you ever encountered anyone that said that eating the diet of Daniel chapter 1 was good for your health? It is not. That's a concentration camp diet. What is it? Pulse and water. All you get is water to drink and pulse is lentils, beans, and peas. Anybody want to sign up? Lentils, beans, and peas. That's what, they, that's what they give you in a gulag. Daniel picked that as his diet to expose the miracle of God taking care of him, not following the king's pagan diet. Right. And that diet wasn't pagan because it involved meat and because it involved wine. It involved those things having been offered to false gods. It involved animals that Daniel couldn't eat. There were reasons that Daniel wanted that diet. And he said, just give me that. Check us after 10 days and see if on a starvation diet or a prison, diet, prison camp diet, we don't look better than your boys. It was a miracle. It was, right. it was a miracle. It was for the display of God being with Daniel and his friends. This was a miracle. There's no therapeutic value in spit mud In the eyes of a man born blind, I just gave you a warning about looking in the Bible and picking things from it. If you get into breeding animals, don't think that you can take your jackknife and make strips in branches and poles and stick them by a watering trough and have all of your animals breed striped animals and produce striped animals. That was a miracle. That was God making up lost wages for Jacob in Genesis chapters 31 and 32. But listen, go home and Google Daniel diet. Oh, yes. I can think of about one million things better to eat this afternoon than water with lentils, beans, and peas. There's a place for peas. I hope you can find it. (laughs) There's a place for beans in Chile with the emphasis on meat. Lord, thank you for a little bit of wisdom. Thank you for showing us this. Why in the world would Jesus do it this way? Jesus wanted to exalt the miracle of the event. Jesus wanted to confound the skeptics. And Jesus wanted to test the man. Because he had to go. And I love this man already. He went. He didn't question. He didn't complain. He didn't say, what took you so long? I've been blind like this since birth. These are whining Christians. He wasn't a whining Christian. He wasn't even a Christian yet. But he went. Lord, that was rude. I'm going to call DSS. I'm going to call Department of Social Services for you putting spit mud in my eyes. There was none of that. Brethren, we are going to have things in the Word of God that when we read them, and when you hear them preached, they are going to sound so hard, so harsh, so difficult, so impossible, so contrary to the flesh. Do not let a spirit rise up with you to even question them. If God said it, that settles it. Right. When he says in Proverbs chapter 11, there is that scattereth. This is talking, it's a financial proverb. It's about money. Take taking your money and scattering it. There is that scattereth, but it tendeth to increase. That is contrary to the financial math taught at Harvard Business School. But there is that withholdeth, keeps it in the wallet, more than is meat, but it tendeth to poverty. Now you mean if I save, it's going to reduce my assets, but if I scatter, it's going to increase my assets? Yes, that's right. Don't question it. Men, it's a men's meeting on Wednesday evening. The topic, money matters. Money matters, or money matters. Wednesday evening for the men's meeting, right here at 6 o'clock. Do you believe that verse? The Bible says that a wife should reverence her husband, even calling him Lord. The woman that called her husband Lord in the Bible was a greater woman than anyone sitting here in stature. I don't mean physical stature. I mean in position in life. Right. And that woman didn't call her husband Lord externally to flatter him. She called her husband Lord in her heart when she would pray about Abraham. She addressed him as my Lord. That's in 1 Peter chapter 3. Now when a woman hears anything like that come out of a pulpit about reverencing your husband, that's Ephesians 5.33, or obeying your husband, that's Titus chapter 2, 4, and 5, or submitting to your husband, that's Ephesians 5.22, they want to rebel. Don't rebel. Believe it. God made you. God made the woman. God made the man. God made the woman from a rib of the man. God made you. God invented marriage. God designed marriage. God ordained marriage. God wants the best for you. God is passing by and he saw you as a wife and he's telling you how you can have the greatest life if you'll do it his way. To the degree you do not do it his way, you cut off your nose to spite your face. You will destroy your own marriage, you will hurt you, you will steal your own joy. You will not protect your life and make your marriage better. That is what the flesh lies to you and that's what your pride wants you to believe because you don't want to humble yourself to your husband. Do it God's way. This man humbled himself the Lord Jesus Christ, stood there and let him give him plaster in both eyes of spit mud, and told, listen, he's already blind, now he's got spit mud, and he's supposed to go find the pool of Siloam? There's occasion for a little bit of resentment, a little bit of resistance, but there wasn't any. And when we find the word of God addressing us, we should believe it and obey it. Right. Do not question it. Who is our great example of faith that did not question? Amen. Abraham, Romans chapter 4, 17 through 21. Amen. Being not weak in faith, he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, that what he had promised he was able also to perform. Right. He considered not his own body now dead. Neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. Right. I love this passage. Romans chapter 4. Are you, I hope that you're very familiar with it. He considered not his own body now dead. Abraham was 100. He was completely dead reproductively. Sarah was completely dead reproductively. Not close, dead. It says he considered not his deadness reproductively, nor her deadness reproductively. And there's a lot of things I could say about that, but it might make you blush, so I'm going to leave it, and you should mark your calendars, that once in a while I do it, by leaving it. He considered not. Right. There were a lot of difficulties. How how can she ovulate? How can How can there be conception? How can there be this? How can there be that? How's it How's it going to happen? How? How? He considered not his own body now dead, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God that what he had promised he was able also to perform. Was God able to perform? Now, impotence means a man's unable to perform, but God's always able to perform. And did Sarah conceive? She absolutely conceived right then. And they had that son in the time of life later. Sarah lived another 47 years and they had a good time. How do I know that? Because after Sarah died, he went on Christian Mingle and found Keturah. And he married Keturah and had six sons by Keturah 50 years later. Why did I bring up that illustration? For this reason. Spit mud in the eyes of a man born blind Go wash in the pool of Siloam. There is that scattereth, but it tendeth to increase. Right. Wives, yeah. reverence your husbands. And all. How about giving thanks for our government over the last eight years? Mm-hmm. The Bible tells us to do it, so we did it. Mm-hmm. Paying taxes, honor to whom honor is due, tribute to whom tribute, custom to whom custom. We pay taxes, we don't argue, we don't fight with government. We don't even want to listen to or read those or think or discuss with those that want to change government. God will change government when it's time for God to change government. Those are little gods that He's put up over us, and the Bible tells us how we should deal with them and, and treat them. And so we do it, even though there is inside of us a spirit of rebellion that wants to stand up and tell them that they're wrong or mock them, and we don't do that. All of these are commandments. And the commandments of God's Word sometimes grate on our nerves or they cause doubt in our minds as to how that could possibly work. It works. It works. I don't care how many people tell me that capital punishment is not a deterrent to murder. The Bible says it's a deterrent to murder. And you and I both know if we reduce ourselves to five-year-olds that we can figure it out because it's very easy to figure out that if somebody's killed, they're not going to kill again. And that is a deterrent to murder. And if somebody's killed, others are not going to kill because they're going to be afraid of dying. But of course, if you go to school for enough years, you'll learn that capital punishment is not a deterrent. I wonder why the murder rate is so high in America because of such a delayed consequence to murder. You know, it's 15 or 20 years before they actually put someone to death. We're thankful when they do it because it's practicing the Bible in our nation, but they do it too slowly, and the Bible warns us about doing it too slowly, that the hearts of men will be set in them to do wickedly. And when he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. What kind of pulpit bedside manner is this? Spit, make mud, stick it in a blind blind man's eyes. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. He was no Joel Osteen, grinning at Victoria like a GQ model. Not our Lord Jesus Christ. He wasn't like Benny Hinn, healing only screened persons, agreeable to lie. Mud in the eye usually makes a seeing man blind, but it was the opposite for our Lord Jesus Christ. While we're on this point, very briefly, because if you want a further detailed explanation, go online to our website and look up James chapter 5. We do not anoint the sick with oil. We do not anoint the sick with oil like James chapter 5, verses 14 and 15 says, because we believe and understand, along with most Baptists for the last 2,000 years, that that was an apostolic gift of the apostles only. That gift of the apostles is mentioned in Mark chapter 6, and verse 13, that they were to go and anoint the sick with oil. According to James chapter 5, that if you anoint with oil, the man that is sick is the one that is supposed to call for the elders of the church. When those elders of the church come and anoint him with oil, the prayer of faith shall save the sick. Now if you have ever known of a case in a church where they were anointed with oil and prayer was made and they were not healed, that's proof that they're misusing James chapter 5. We believe in prayer, and so we have sitting in our midst and have had sitting in our midst others in times past that were delivered from cancer by our praying, not by our anointing with oil. What kind of oil would you use, 10W30 or 20W50? Where would you anoint them? How much would you use? We don't know any of those things because all that instruction is left out. It's not in any pastoral epistle. It's in James to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. The Greeks seek after wisdom and the Jews require a sign. We just don't do it. If you want more if you want a whole lot of information on that and why we don't do it It's James chapter 5 on our website. There's a detailed verse-by-verse commentary there, and you can look up verses 14 and 15 of James 5. Verse 7, And said unto him, This is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to the man born blind with a plaster of spit mud on his eyes. Go, wash in the pool of Siloam. Jesus did not intend for his ointment to be left on long or repeated twice a day. When Jesus has the cure, there is often a command attached, And brethren, there are commands. Will you obey the command? If you have a marriage that isn't what it should be, there are descriptive statements and commands in the Bible that until you follow them, and until you follow them near perfectly, you're going to suffer. It's that simple. There are financial commands in the Bible. There are relationship commands in the Bible. There's political commands in the Bible. He got a command when we get a command in the Bible, we should go do it. This man could have complained, questioned, or resented such harsh treatment. Thank Naaman. Remember Naaman? He comes to Elisha's door. His servants knock for him, of course. Elisha sends a servant. Elisha won't even get it of his lazy boy to come and see Naaman. Now Naaman's an important man. Naaman is the captain of the host of the king of Syria. He is not used to being treated like this. Elisha won't even come in that little apartment that he was living in to the door, but sends a servant and says the message is, go dip yourself seven times in Jordan. Well, now Jordan is at sea level and it's a filthy river compared to the rivers of Syria. And so Naaman's in a rage. Elisha wouldn't come. Seven times the Jordan, like that's going to take away my leprosy. I have had a few baths over the last twenty years, and it hasn't taken away my leprosy. All the reasoning that could have gone through Naaman's mind, and the servants come up and tug on it, sir. Why are you in a rage? All he said was, "Dip seven times." We're here because we've heard of a great reputation for Elisha. You brought a whole bunch of coin. You were willing to pay a great price. Why not just dip? They were wise. Oh, to have servants like that. With wisdom like that. And so finally they convinced Naaman to go down and dip seven times in the river Jordan. And when he comes up, he is cleansed. Are you willing to keep the commandments of God? Do you know how we practice that? When we're baptized by immersion against 95% of all Christians on earth. 95% of all Christians on earth say that we are nuts for baptizing by immersion. Roman Catholics, Greek Orthodox, Lutherans, and the other Protestant daughters of Rome—we get the same privilege. Jesus says, "Get down in the water." Why don't we have this? Used to be open. This used to be open for a dry pastor baptistry. Why did we throw a dry pa- pastor baptistry out and sell it on Craigslist? Because in the book, of, in the Bible, they both went down into the water. When Philip stopped that chariot with the eunuch in it, or the eunuch stopped the chariot with Philip in it, they both went down to the water and they both came up out of the water. When the Bible tells us to do something, we do it. And I'm trying to share that with you by getting a practical lesson under these verses. This man was a good man. He didn't know Jesus yet. Like he's going to know him before this chapter finishes. Go and wash in the pool of Siloam. The Hebrew to Greek to English word Siloam has the definition of being sent as the Holy Spirit here tells us. There is little known reason why we're given the meaning of the name Siloam here, like at other times when we have explained to us that Messiah equals Christ. And in John chapter 1 and John chapter 4, why not believe that like the waters, the Son of God was sent for earthly good. The waters of Siloam were for the good of Jerusalem. And and the Lord Jesus Christ was sent for earthly good. Why not believe that God had this definition in use for this very day for 1,000 years? That doesn't bother me a bit. That God would have arranged for this pool to have been named sent because Jesus would send or God would send Jesus to this man who was sent and he went. And it tells us in the second verse, the second sentence of verse 7 he went. He went his way, therefore. He tapped his way. He asked for directions. This man, though treated so harshly, followed the instruction of Jesus and went. Naaman eventually dipped and was healed, though he initially argued against it. Are you willing to hear harsh preaching and humbly obey the precepts from God that are found in the Bible? you have faith to trust God's commands that your flesh resents and resists? Lord, help us. He went his way, therefore, and washed. Jesus said to do it. He went and did it and came seeing. Yes, he came seeing. The man born blind could see. Believe his vision was better than 2020. Jesus didn't just barely heal. When Jesus healed, the man that was a cripple at the beautiful gate of the temple in Acts chapter 3, what does it say? He's slowly standing up like a young colt. No. He leaping. Stood and ran around leaping. He was bouncing the rest of the day with the apostles. He was a living demonstration of the power of Jesus Christ in the life of that man. Thank you, Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory. And he caused the blind to see. As he was passing by, he saw a man born blind. Impossible situation. Just one man. Jesus was in his travels to another destination, but it was enough for him to see. And so we have the first seven verses of John chapter 9 and the fantastic, wonderful healing of the man born blind. He is going to be questioned by his neighbors. He's going to be questioned by the Pharisees. His parents are going to be questioned by the Pharisees. He'll be questioned again by the Pharisees. And he will will do a wonderful job answering those Pharisees. He will get excluded from the church. This is the Old Testament church. He will get excluded before we get to the end of the chapter. But the Lord Jesus Christ is going to hear that he's excluded from the church and is going to find him again. And the sight that he gets the second time is going to be better than the first. He is going to have the question asked of him by Jesus Christ. Dost thou believe in the Son of God? Lord, who is he that I should believe on him? He's talking to you right now. Lord, I believe. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? That the word was made flesh and dwelt among men, and we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father. No man could do this without the power of God. And so we have this recorded for us by John that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The man obediently followed his Lord's instruction and received the reward and came back to where he had been. But when he came back, the neighbors were there, acquaintances were there, travelers were there to question him. But Jesus was gone. He didn't know where. If you ever feel like Jesus has left you and you're not sure how to find him, then humbly submit to his word and confess your sins and he will find you. Right. Just like he found this man. When we read the Song of Solomon, which not only does it have a beautiful picture of a great romantic marriage, but it also has a picture of Jesus Christ's love for his church. That man... Stuck his hand in by the door and turned the knob, and the wife's stomach was turned upside down with joy and delight inside. And then he withdrew and she pursued him. Sometimes the Lord may withdraw a little bit, could be our sins. We sometimes quench and grieve the Holy Spirit of God, so his presence is not as real with us. At other times, he may withdraw to see if we'll chase him. There's great honor. glory in being chased and the Lord Jesus Christ be deserves being chased for the rest of our lives we should chase him with everything we have and he may withdraw himself if we'll humble ourselves confess our sins and seek his face he will find us and if if you've been a Christian for very long and you've experienced that you know that it's true it's in the Bible and it's true and he found this man again when he was excluded by others when, others, when, when friends forsake you, don't worry about that. There's only one friend that really matters. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. And that's in the Lord Jesus Christ. He will never leave you nor forsake you. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.